welcome. Uh, if you would take your Bibles out, if you haven't yet, um, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, again, there are pew Bibles underneath the uh, seats in front of you, so dig one of those out and turn with me, if you would, in your pew Bibles to page 973. Tonight, we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Here we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Let me read that for us, and then we will pray, and then we'll see what God has for us. So hear God's word for you, dear ones, tonight. This is his will for you tonight. This is what he wants for you to hear tonight. So let's give it our attention. St. Paul, continuing to write to these churches in Galatia, and he says to them, chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's ask God to help us understand this portion of his word. Father, again, we come tonight humbly recognizing that we are dependent upon you and on your spirit to illuminate us, to give us a right understanding, a right framework to grasp this part of the Bible, and ask that you would work, work good, faithful work in our lives. Show us the grace of the gospel. Show us the necessity of faith. Show us the joy of obedience. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning when Phil was preaching, I, had to, I really had to go to the bathroom, so I stepped out for a minute. Trust me, I don't do that regularly. But just as I was stepping out through this door, I heard Phil say, I'm going to pull a Luke. And so I stopped out there in the narthex thinking, oh, no, I'm about to lose my job. He's going to say, you know, uh, I didn't really think that. And he, he went on to give an illustration for the Lord of the Rings. And uh, so guess what my immediate thought out there in the narthex was? Got to change my opening illustration for the sermon tonight. Dad, come it. He just set me up for failure. And so all afternoon, I thought and thought and thought, and I couldn't think of anything better. So you're getting a Lord of the Rings illustration to open. And listen, listen, if you're tired of them, 
I've got a great idea. You come and give me some illustrations because I'm just inherently limited to, uh, to worlds of fantasy, I guess, that you only find in books. But th- this is a great one, okay? I, I've got to throw it out there for you. And I, pr- I promise, I promise you that my next sermon will be void of Lord of the Rings illustrations. So I'll take at least one sermon off, okay? So with that disclaimer, <laughs> all right, uh, remember, well, you might not remember. If you haven't read Lord of the Rings, this obviously isn't going to be helpful, but I'm assuming most of you have. Um, Gandalf and the Fellowship of the Ring are in the minds of Moria in the darkness, running away from the, the evil demon who's chasing them, the Balrog, and Gandalf has all the Fellowship cross the bridge first to exit the mines. And in the movies, this is just brilliantly portrayed. And as Gandalf is crossing the bridge, uh, over under which there's this dark abyss. He, he just gets across and turns around and has a confrontation with this evil creature of the underworld and stop and breaks the bridge and the Balrog falls down into the abyss and at the last minute, whoosh, takes his whip and grabs Gandalf by the ankle and pulls Gandalf in with him. And Gandalf is holding on by his fingernails and he looks up at Frodo right as he's about to let go and he says, fly, you fools, and let's go, to go down with the demon into the abyss. Fly, you fools. That's what Paul's saying to the churches of Galatia tonight. You foolish Galatians, he says. Who has bewitched you? Fly, run away. That's, in a sense, the whole point that Paul's been making so far in this letter. Run away from depending on the works of the law to make you right with God, to bring you into God's family, and run away, fly to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rest in Him by faith alone. Trust in His life, death, and resurrection for you. Fly! Fly, you fools! Paul's made that point again and again and again as he's written this letter to a number of churches in what is today south-central Turkey, churches that he had planted and churches that he loved. He had left these churches, and after he had left, some other teachers had come in, and I've said this every week, I hope that it's redundant to you, because I want you to remember, these teachers, the guys that they called Judaizers, came and said, Jesus is essential. He is essential for you to become a Christian, for you to be made right with God, for you to be a part of the community of faith. But he's not sufficient. He's essential, but he's not sufficient. You must, on top of believing in Jesus, observe what Paul calls the works of the law, which means you must be circumcised. You must uh, keep the kosher laws. You must observe certain festivals and feasts. You must Judaize, become a Jew, hence the name Judaizers. So Paul wrote this letter aghast, dismayed that this sort of teaching, which he considered in chapter 1, verse 6, another gospel, had infiltrated into his baby church plants. And Galatians is his response to this false teaching of Jesus plus something gospel. Paul's written Galatians to say that Jesus plus something equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything when it comes to your being made right with God. And last time we saw in the end of chapter 2, I think sort of the centerpiece of the whole letter, Paul there reminded Peter and the others of our identity as Christians. And one of the key things that he said in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, is that part of our identity, if we've believed in Jesus, if we've claimed Jesus as Lord, is that we are justified. 
We have been declared righteous. We have been acquitted of all of our sins. We have been pardoned and forgiven by God. And so Paul tonight, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, is really giving evidence. He's, he's giving arguments for why that statement, that your identity is as one who is justified, is declared righteous, for why that statement is legitimate and biblical and something that the Galatians should believe and why that statement is something that you and I should believe as well. And so there's three things, three arguments, three lines of evidence that I want to show you tonight from chapter 3, those verses that we just read, uh, that in a sense are Paul's ways of proving that justification has always been by faith, is by faith, and will always be by faith. Three things for you then. I want to show you uh, the reception of the Spirit, the recounting of the Scripture, and the rejection of the Savior. So that's hopefully alliterative enough for you to remember. You can use the outline there on the back of the bulletin if you wish. But let's look first then at Paul's line of evidence, his argument regarding the reception of the Spirit. That's what he gets at there in the first couple of verses of chapter 3, particularly verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice something very interesting from, from the theologian, the masterful logician, Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote dense texts like Romans and Galatians, he begins his argument here by appealing not to some theological maxim, but by appealing to the personal experience, the personal experience of the Christians there in that ancient church in Galatia. Basically, what he says is, don't you remember what happened to you? When was it that your life was transformed? He says, was it when you observed the works of the law, verse 2, that you received the Spirit? Or was it when you heard, when you heard the gospel, when you heard the message that Jesus himself gave me and that I gave to you by faith and believed that that message was true? At what moment did you receive the Spirit? At what moment... Was your life transformed? At what moment did you receive new life? And he pummels them here with a number of questions that really are all coming from different vantage points, but going along the same line. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Did you see miracles worked among you and by works of the law or by the Spirit? By hear, or did, you, did you get the supplies of the Spirit, miracles among you, by works of the law, by hearing with faith? His point is that all you have to do, Galatians, is remember what has happened in your life as believers. Your life was changed not when you started observing kosher laws. Your life wasn't changed when you got circumcised, if you've been circumcised. Your life was changed. Well, that would have changed your life as well. But you know the point. Your life was changed when you received the Spirit, when you heard the gospel. And notice there, he says that Jesus, verse 1, was publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. In other words, Paul is saying, when I was in Galatia, just like he says to the Corinthians, I preached to you Christ crucified. And when you believed that news, when you accepted that message and turned to Jesus as Lord, at that moment, the Spirit invaded your existence. At that moment, you were changed. All you have to do is, is remember how you received the Spirit, he's saying, in order to know that justification, life change, transformation doesn't come by observing 
works of the law that these Judaizers are telling you to do. No, it comes by believing, by hearing with faith. You know, a very important point here that might be obvious, but it, it kind of struck me this week. Do we, re- do we remember what we've got with uh, our reception of the Spirit of God? Do we realize that part of the definition of being a Christian is that God in transferable form, right, the Holy Spirit, has, has invaded your very existence. That happened at the moment of faith. And so Paul can say things like he says in other letters. You are now a new creation. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. You have now entered a new eon, a new sphere, a new age of existence. Through your belief in this news, the Spirit has come to you. It's important for us, for us as believers, particularly if we've been Christians for some time, particularly if we've been prone to falling into the ruts and going through the motions of the Christian life, to remember the power, the power, the divine power that really resides within us. Sometimes I watch um, that show, Antique Roadshow. Have you guys ever seen that show? Um, It's one of those shows where Guys and gals will bring like old clunky objects that they found in their attic and give them to these experts and the experts will determine their worth. And it's always hilarious to me. You know, some guy from, you know, who knows where, Southern Virginia or Northern Maryland will come with some old watch or clock and say, this clock's been up in my attic for, you know, 60 years. And the guy will look at it and he'll say, this is, this is George Washington's clock. This is worth... $75 $75 million, you know, <laughs> they just come unglued, right, at that moment when, when they're told this object that they haven't paid any attention to for years is worth just an amazing amount of money. Listen, you've got the Holy Spirit in you right now, a new creation working on you, changing you, impacting you, affecting you. Sometimes we need to kind of get on the spiritual antique roadshow because the spirits become an antique up in our spiritual attic. Come on glued, folks. You struggling, you having a hard time, you dealing with all sorts of sin patterns that you can't seem to get past or your relationships falling apart. There's a lot of things that I as a pastor can tell you, but one of the fundamental things that the Bible tells you is seek the spirit while he may be found. Yearn and plead with the spirit to work healing and renewal in your life. Believe the promise God, right now, if you've believed in Jesus, has given you the Spirit. He's given you himself, divine power. God himself has sort of set up shop inside of you, inside your heart, inside your mind. Believe that. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. Remember your experience with the Spirit. That's his first line of evidence to show that justification, being made right with God, and coming into God's community doesn't come by observance of works of the law, but it comes by hearing with faith. The second thing he gives us is uh, asking the Galatians and asking us to recount the scripture. And he starts that in verse 6, and he takes it through verse 12. And this text, this part of the passage is tough. You know, it's, I remember one of the first times I went skiing, snow skiing, um, as a young man. And I was with people who, and you might have had a similar experience, who were much more experienced than I was as a skier. And you know what happens when you go skiing? And people who are much more experienced than you, you're with a group of people who are really good, like look like they should be in the Olympics, and you're sort of wedging and hoping not to smash into a tree. Um, you, know, you, know, you know what always happens, right? They take you up to this massive cliff, 
It looks like this, this is like, this, not only is this straight down, this is like inverted, right? And the cliff has like these huge moguls, huge hills, and they just take off. And you're up there by yourself, and they realize you're back behind. They call back, hey, man, this will be, you'll be fine. It's not that bad. <laughs> and you're just sitting up there looking down at this impossible-looking cliff. Well, at that point, you don't have any options. You can try and slide down on your, on your rear. You can try and ski down. You can't really hitchhike down, but you got to do whatever you got to do to get down. That's kind of how you might feel looking at this, this text. Like you're about to like drop off of a steep cliff full of moguls. It's pretty dense. It's pretty thick. So I want to take you through it, guide you through it briefly, but carefully, and help you get the main point. What Paul's doing here starting in verse 6, is he's, he's sort of using the Judaizers', Judaizers arguments against them. Now, you've got to keep that in mind. Remember, these false teachers came into the churches in Galatia after Paul, and they would have come in with their Old Testaments, you know, thumping that Old Testament scroll and saying, look at this text, look at this text, look at this text. Hasn't Paul read Deuteronomy? Hasn't Paul read Genesis 17? It's clear in the Bible that circumcision is required to be a part of God's family. Boom, boom, boom. Bible, Bible, Bible. And so Paul comes in and just kind of turns their arguments on the head. And he says, okay, you want to talk about biblical exegesis and interpretation? We'll do that. And it's sort of like when you get into, have you ever had an experience where you kind of get into a discussion or an argument with someone that's like clearly superior to you intellectually? And you just feel like, a, not only do you feel like there's nothing I can say that's going to be helpful, but then they start like taking what you've said and using it against you. And you're like, you're just a lot smarter than me. Well, so what? You know, that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's taking the arguments of the Judaizers and he's using those very arguments against them. And there's really two arguments that he makes here as he's recounting the scripture to them. So let me take you through them real quick, okay? The first one deals with Abraham. And this is almost exactly parallel to what Pastor Phil preached on this morning. Um, so not only did he set me up to fail with my Lord of the Rings illustration, but you've already heard this text. I mean, this is very closely parallel with Romans, Romans chapter 4, and we'll hear more about it next week. So it's very, very important if Paul lists such careful wording, similar wording twice. But the, point, the bottom line here with Abraham, when he brings Abraham up in verse 6 and goes talking about him through verse 9, is that he's saying to the Judaizers, listen, the Bible itself, verse 8, says that God even made a promise to Abraham way back then that God wanted to justify not just the Jews. He wanted to justify, Paul tells us, the Gentiles by faith. And then he quotes Genesis 12, 3, there at the end of verse 8. In you, Abraham, God had said to Abraham, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. I'm not just wanting to save your descendants, your physical lineage, the nation of Israel. No. My purpose with Abraham, Paul's saying to the Judaizers and to the Galatians, isn't for Israel to see how special they are. It's for Israel to be the instrument of salvation for the world. So from the very beginning, Paul says, it was told to Abraham, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, Paul says. And the gospel was always intended to be completely inclusive of all peoples. That's the first thing he says about Abraham. The second thing he says about Abraham is more important, and it's what Phil talked about to us briefly this morning, and that's this. The key point to remember in the life of Abraham is this. His faith preceded his circumcision. Verse 6. Same verse that Paul quotes in Romans 4. Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. Believed God and it was 
counted or credited to him as righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15. Not until Genesis 17 did God even mention circumcision. And so Paul's saying the Judaizers have become so obsessed with the sign, they're so obsessed with texts like Genesis 17 that they've completely undercut the more fundamental text, which is Genesis 15. They've forgotten that it's Abraham's faith, even in the Old Testament, that God very clearly says is what made him right. It's not his circumcision. The Judaizers are like uh, my experience that I used to have with my dog when I'd throw him a ball in the backyard of our house growing up, and I'd I'd throw him a ball, and he'd just kind of sit there and stare at me. He He was really cute, but he wasn't a real sharp dog. Wouldn't have been a great hunting dog at all. And I'd say, go get the ball. And I would point. And what would he do? He would come up and like start licking and sniffing my finger instead of going to get the ball. The Judaizers are obsessed with the sign. They're obsessed with something that is merely meant to point to the fundamental issue. That is faith. They're, they're, sniffing a, they're sniffing the finger like a dog rather than going to get the ball. You see what I'm saying? And so Paul's saying, listen, you've completely forgotten that not only did God want to justify the Gentiles by faith, even he even said that to Abraham, but that Abraham very clearly tells us in Genesis 15, 6 that he was justified by faith. Faith precedes circumcision. So Paul says, you're misreading your own scriptures, Judaizers. So he tells them about Abraham. And then in verses 10 and 11 and 12, he gets into some thick, heavy water, partly because he's throwing out all these random Old Testament quotes here. If you read it through just once, it seems completely random and very obscure. But really what he's getting at here is he's saying, okay, not only is Abraham a good argument that I'm going to use against you, but you've also, Judaizers, you've forgotten the function of the law. And so he quotes, for example, Deuteronomy 27.26 and Leviticus 18.5. Look at verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by, and here's the key word, all things. Deuteronomy 27. By all things written in the book of the law and do them. And later on, uh, Leviticus 18.5, down there in verse 12. The one who does them, the law, is an economy of doing. The one who does the law shall live by them. So Paul's saying, listen, the law's function was never to save you. The law's function was never to justify you. The law's function was to tell you that there's a standard that you can never, ever attain. The standard is you must observe, as he says, as the Old Testament says, all the things, everything, everything written in the book of the law and do them. And the one who does them shall live. That's the law economy. That's what God has told you from the very beginning, Judaizers, Galatians. You've inverted the priority of the law. You've misread its function. You think that by obeying the law, you can be made right with God, but that's not the purpose of the law. That's sort of his second argument there. Now, the whole second half of Galatians 3 is Paul expanding on that exact point. And so next time, we'll talk more about that If you're a little bit confused or if you want to know a little bit more about that now, just come back next time. But the point, again, is that Paul uses these Old Testament references about Abraham and from the the law to show the purpose of the law, to, to show the Judaizers and the Galatians that, hey, not only have you forgotten what it was like when you received the Spirit and how you received the Spirit, but you've forgotten what the Scripture itself says. You Judaizers think you're so sharp in the Old Testament, you think I've ignored it, but... 
it's pretty clear to me that you're the ones that have misread it. Recount the scriptures. I think a very interesting question at this point is um, maybe one that you've thought about before. How did the Jews miss this? You know, it seems, it seems pretty clear there, Deuteronomy 27, 26. How did, they, how did they get so confused? The whole nation, people that were extremely devout, extremely religious, extremely zealous. How did they sort of miss the boat so much so that they, they crucified the savior of the world? They crucified the best teacher of the law that's ever lived. How did that happen? I think that's a relevant question because I think, I think here's the fundamental answer. The reason, I think, or at least a big part of the reason why the Jews missed the boat, and I'm not making a, a, a racial statement, that the reason why many, many religious people missed the boat is because they had a massive, un, a, massive, a massive misunderstanding, a massive misunderstanding of the purpose of their chosen status by God. That's what I want you to get. They saw their election intended as, as personal blessing and benefit rather than as mission to the nations. They had somewhere along the line started thinking that God had chosen them because they were special rather than out of his sovereign grace. They had started thinking that election, their choosing by God, meant that they should huddle up together and forget the world rather than, than go out together and give the gospel to the world. Leslie Newbegin, a great theologian, puts this very well. He writes, quote, One of the false ideas that is gathered around the doctrine of election is the idea that election is election to privileged status before God. This false belief is something against which the prophets of Israel had constantly to contend. It is indeed true that in many moving passages of the Old Testament, we are told of God's undying love for Israel, of his commitment to its cause. Yet, and here's the key, yet this love and commitment are to Israel as the instrument of God's purpose of love for all the nations. And when Israel interprets God's love as a license to do as it pleases, chastisement follows. It's very important for us to get as well, I think. When we see election as justification for gathering in a holy huddle and internalizing, we're misunderstanding it. When we see election, rather, as justification and motivation to get on mission with the gospel to God's glory, we're grasping its purpose. So Paul lays out two reasons why justification is by faith. He says, remember your experience with the Spirit, how you received the Spirit. It was by hearing with faith and not by works of the law. He says, recount your own scriptures. The Bible has always said, your cherished law has always said that justification is by faith, not by observance of the law. And the third piece of evidence that Paul gives, very briefly here, is in verse 13 and 14. He tells us here about the rejection of the Savior. And this, I think, is the crowning piece of evidence Paul always finds a way to, to get on the gospel interstate as fast as possible. He wants to get on the, the on-ramp that takes you to the gospel very, very quickly. And that's what he's, he's doing here. And so he gets to verse 13. He quotes one more fundamentally important, probably more obscure passage. 
from Deuteronomy 21, 23, he says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he uses that as a jumping point to give us one of the most concise summaries of the gospel in all of scripture. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so Paul says, the final thing you gotta get when you remember that justification is by faith is to remember that Jesus has taken the curse of the law on his head. He has, as the Bible itself tells us, become a curse by hanging on a tree so that, Paul tells us, verse 14, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to everyone who believes, so that we might all receive the promised spirit through faith. You've misread the law, he says. You think that the law saves you. The law doesn't save you. The law will condemn you. It tells you that you're not good enough. But the other thing you've misread, the fundamental thing that you've missed is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has borne the curse of the law in your place. He's substituted himself for you. So that no, you're not cursed, although you're a lawbreaker. You're forgiven. You're justified. You're acquitted. You're set completely free. Because Jesus, the only man who's ever lived who didn't deserve to be cursed of God, was cursed. And he did that willingly and freely for a sinner like you. Judaizers, Galatians, Paul says, you've forgotten the gospel. The substitutionary work of Jesus, which means that anyone and everyone who believes in him may be justified may be declared righteous and may be a part of this family, may sit at the table with the other brothers and sisters of faith. You must remember that because that and only that, Paul says to you right now, that and only that is going to change you. Only the gospel of Jesus' death for you is going to change the way you think about yourself. It's going to change the way you think about others and it's going to change the way you think about God covered that a number of times already in Galatians. That's one of the reasons I wanted to preach on Galatians is because it's so fundamental to our own remembering our identity as Christians. You, friend, through Jesus are beloved of God. There's nothing that you could ever do that would get God to condemn you. There's as great a chance of God condemning you and despising you and treating you like an orphan as there is God treating Jesus in a despised orphan manner. It changes the way you think about yourself. You're loved of God. And it changes the way you think about others, particularly as we've seen already in Galatians. Those who are different from us, those who look different and dress different and act different, those who come from the other side of the tracks, if they believed in Jesus, they are one with us now. And most importantly, it changes the way you think about God. Yes, he's just. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he is a judge. But he has already laid out judgment for you in Jesus. So that fundamentally for you, God is a father to whom we cry out, as Paul will say later, Abba, Father. He has given us spirit, sonship. God loves you. He loves you deeply. And so when you struggle during the week about how you think about yourself, about your relationships with others, and about where you are with God, you must go back to the fact that Jesus bore the curse for you. No, you are not cursed, nor will you ever be cursed. You are infinitely and ineffably loved 
by your Creator and your Redeemer. That's what the gospel again and again proclaims to you, and that's what you and I must believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this word that St. Paul has given to the churches in Galatia and that has been handed down and recorded and now given to us. And we thank you that under the Spirit's work and inspiration, we can believe that these things are true of us now. And Lord, we pray that this belief would work impactfully in our lives, that again, we would have a changed view of ourselves, that we would begin to see ourselves not as great and wonderful because of what we've done, but as beloved of you, that we would begin to see others who have placed faith in Christ, particularly others who are different than us and who aren't like us and who might even bother us. Oh God, may we grow in unity in our Catholicity with others because of the oneness that Jesus has created in the gospel. And may we see you and worship you as our loving Father, the one who in his great love for us has given his Son to make us sons and daughters as well, co-heirs with Jesus of your entire kingdom and of all the privileges and joys that come with being a part of your family. Oh God, will you please, by your Spirit, work good change in our hearts as we trust that that message is true for us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.